The thing about systematic teaching, working through a book, is that uh, often there are bits that you wouldn't otherwise hear about. Who's ever heard a sermon on Ananias and Sapphira? (laughs) Well, that's where we're going to be going today. So let's open our Bibles at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 5, sorry. 4, 4, we start at 4. Yeah. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, picking up from where we were last week. There's actually two halves to this, this reading today and two halves to this sermon. So we'll start at 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power... The apostles giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and bought it, the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself and his wife, with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of that land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart and have not lied to men but to God? And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men got up and carried or covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And he said, yes. She said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you've agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. That's a sermon to cheer, cheer us up again this morning, isn't it? <laughs> Anyone want to confess about anything yet before we start? <laughs> this passage falls into two contrasting halves. And in the first half, we see the unity of the community exemplified by Barnabas. In the second half, we see the falseness of Ananias and Sapphira, who brought fear to the community. And it seems to me that the church needs both of these elements. On the one hand, we need to be in harmony with one another. We need to be looking out for those in need amongst us. On the other hand, we need to be in a proper awe of God. With this, we should not take lightly the privilege of being part of his people, members of his community. 
let's consider each of these elements in turn. First of all, the good community. What's being described here is the people of God in harmony, in unity. God had done something special amongst this group of people in order to bring them into such a deep level of unity. He starts by saying all the believers were one in heart and in mind. They all had the same beliefs. They all had the same passion for God. They all wanted the same thing, the same outcome. And where God's people are in unity, indeed, the blessing of God is poured out. And we saw that in an earlier passage from week three. And we looked at, briefly at Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commands the blessing, even life forevermore. When God's people are united in heart, when they're not carrying grudges, when they are not got stuff between them, God is pleased to pour out his blessing. I think there, never, there has never been a time since that the church has been in such unity as it was at this point, except in small pockets. And you, see, you can see how God was blessing them beyond measure as their numbers rose from 120 to about 15,000 in just a few weeks or months. 120 to 15,000. That's an incredible growth pattern. There is great power when God's people are in unity with one another. What Satan wants more than anything else is division amongst God's people. That is why our fracturing and denominationalism is a blight on the church. And I'm not suggesting that our differences don't matter. They do. However, fracturing of the church has been as much down to personalities and power struggles as to theology. It's important, especially on a local level, both within our fellowship and within our town, that as far as possible we stay in unity with one another for the sake of the kingdom of God. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Do you know this is where Karl Marx got his idea of communism from? He read this and said that's how people should be living. Problem was or he had, that was that if you try and force this level of sharing by violence and without redeeming the heart of humanity, the selfishness within unredeemed man takes over. In communist Russia or China or North Korea, all people are equal. But there are always some who are more equal than others. There are the ones who sit in luxury while the peasants starve. In 1932 to 1933, seven million people in Stalin's Russia starved to death. There are always those who kill those who don't agree with them. And the Cultural Revolution in China, up to 100 million people were killed because they didn't agree with the government. Even now, today, the the church in China is being badly persecuted every week. Pastors are being arrested, churches are being shut down. And the West turns a blind eye because it wants to trade. You see, trying to enforce good principle without redeeming the heart doesn't work because people are basically selfish. We need redemption. We need the power of salvation to transform community and society. Violent revelation and enforced change are never the answer to the injustices of society. There has to be a change of heart and a commitment to serving the greater purposes of God for this world. 
And this is why Jesus emphasis for our community is that we should love one another. It's only as we do so that God can establish his purposes amongst us. And this love in the early church was not just a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. It resulted in each person using their substance to help the needy amongst them. And it also had a consequence for the power of ministry and the witness experienced by the apostles. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. The result of this unity amongst them was that miraculous was poured out through the hands of the apostles. Again, we say again, where God's people are in unity, there is the blessing. We all have responsibility in this. Where we are striving to establish a community that reflects the love, grace and power of God towards this world. So we will see the power of God poured out amongst us. If we're resentful, full of infighting, negative in our attitude towards one another, gossips, we should not be surprised if the power of God is not seen amongst us. It seems that unity and power have often gone together throughout history. And I could pick out many examples, but my, my, my memory, my, my historical memory just strayed to the Anabaptists who set out to seek to, to, to establish a, a society under God that was just and fair. And as they did so, and as they, they established it in unity, so the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit was poured out amongst them. And many of the things that we now associate with the charismatic movement, such as the glossolalia, healings and miracles, all these things were seen amongst the Anabaptists 400 years ago because they were in unity with one another. God always moves powerfully throughout history where people are in unity. He may have done so through individuals, but they were normally members or leaders of such communities. And I cannot underemphasize that message of unity. God's people are required to be in unity with one another. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, preserve the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, stay at peace with one another. Yes, you can disagree. Yes, you might not be happy with everybody else. But actually, they might not be happy with you. So we commit to staying in harmony and staying in unity and staying in peace with one another. For the sake of the kingdom of God. Verse 34 to 35. For there was not a needy person amongst them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they will be distributed to any as they had need. This way of being community draws on the Levitical law. Deuteronomy 15.4 says, However, there will be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance to possess. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, For the poor will never cease to be in the land, therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and poor in your land. You see, back in the establishment of the Levitical law, the people of Israel were expected to look after their fellow Israelites in the land, particularly those who had fallen on hard times. And the early church, in recognizing that they were a new nation under God, took this requirement of the law and applied it to their own community. And they said, there's not going to be anyone needy amongst us either. So we have a description of how they did it. Individuals sold what they had in order to care for the needs of others. Of course, we now have the welfare system, which reputedly cares for the poorest amongst us. Struggles to do so. 
for different reasons, which I won't get into. But that doesn't exempt any of us from taking action to help others within our community, as the Spirit prompts us. And this brings us to Barnabas. He's the example here. In the early part of Acts, this this man Barnabas keeps popping up, and wherever he does, it's to bless and encourage others. What do we know about him? Well, firstly, we're told that he was a Cypriot. Of course, Cyprus is an island off the coast of Lebanon, not too far removed from Israel. We know also he was a Jew, since at this time the church had not spread beyond the Jewish community of Jerusalem. But he was part of the diaspora, the scattered Jewish community that Paul made the initial focus of his ministry efforts later on. We're also told that he was a Levite. So like Paul, it's likely that he was well-educated in the Jewish law. He may even have been from a priestly family. And he, like Paul, had probably been sent by his family to the university in Jerusalem to be educated. He was a man who knew the law. He was a man of substance. He was a man who knew his God. And he was a man who had come into an encounter through Jesus Christ and through the Spirit with the living God. And so out of that heart and all that God had brought him to, he brought that generosity of spirit towards the community. And of course, he's a Levite. And this is in contrast with the parable of the Good Samaritan, where we see the Levite passing by on the other side of the man in difficulty. In comparison, Barnabas is the man who steps out and helps the person in difficulty. He sells a field, part of his inheritance, and he gave the money to the apostles to make provision for the poor amongst them. Thirdly, we're told that he was an encourager. His name meant, or the name they gave him meant, son of encouragement. He's one of those people who, if you're in the wrong mood, can sometimes be annoying, who always see the glass half full. (laughs) Types of people who always have a smile on their face, who are always able to bring that same positivity to others. But without Barnabas, as we'll see later on in the narrative, Paul may may have remained a tent maker in Tarsus. Without Barnabas, John Mark may well have dropped, dropped out of ministry for good. The church needs Barnabases. Those who see the potential in others and nurture it even in the face of failure. Those who take the ones discarded by others and restore them up to a place of usefulness in the body of Christ. Barnabas was an encourager. But this brings us to Ananias and Sapphira, who stand in contrast with Barnabas within the passage. And indeed, his generous gift is the backdrop to their less than generous one. From our 21st century perspective, this story might seem a bit brutal. Surely their sin didn't merit being struck down by the Almighty, did it? I'm sure we could all name people who have done far more heinous things who have not suffered the same fate. So what was so bad about what they did that it warranted immediate execution? Well, firstly, the sin of both of them was willful. It was not that they accidentally held some of the money back from the sale or that they did it as a last-minute idea, an instinctive thing. Rather, they conspired, they planned, they knew exactly what they were going to do, and then they did it. And you have to question their motives for doing this. 
Were they wanting to look good in front of the rest of the community by pretending to be more than they actually were? Was it just that greed got the better of them? Did they resent some selling their property to help the poor and then felt obliged to do the same because the example had been set by wealthy people in the community? Whatever their motive, their sin was willful and deliberate. And whilst all sin is sin, willful and deliberate sin, pre-planned, flows out of something deeper within us. It's an indicator of an area of our life not submitted to God. It's also an indicator of rebellion and that we know what's the right way to act, but we choose not to follow it. In the garden, Eve was deceived, but it was Adam who sinned willfully. And so it was his sin that brought death, guilt and shame into the world because it was a deliberate act out of knowledge. So this couple bought most of the proceeds of the sale and laid them at the apostles' feet just as Barnabas had done. Nobody would have been any the wiser, had Peter not had a word of knowledge at that moment. In cases like this, the word of knowledge is powerful. It's reported of Spurgeon, that one day he was preaching, and he looked up into the gallery and said, Young man, the gloves you have in your pocket are not paid for. After the service, this young fellow came beseeching him not to say anything more about it. But the circumstances led to the man's conversion. The word of knowledge can be powerful. And just as it can be powerful in in exposing sin, so it can be powerful in bringing people to faith. The word given to Peter did, did not just reveal the fact of the sin of this couple, but also the source. It says they'd been tempted by Satan. And this is the first appearance of Satan, the first acknowledgement of him in the book of Acts. And his aim, of course, is to disrupt this community that was in harmony. And it always is. Satan doesn't like it when God's people are united, because it's a threat to his kingdom. And the exposure of this satanic source meant that the secret sin that had threatened to disrupt the community was dealt with. But what does Peter identify as being the real issue here? What's the heart of the issue? What's the problem? Is it that they were greedy? Is it that they tried to to deceive the apostles and the community? No, it was that they'd lied to the Holy Spirit and to God in seeking to deceive God's community for their own purposes. And in doing so, they were seeking to deceive God himself. How was that? It was because they were pretending to be exemplary Christians, whilst really living out their own selfish motives. Effectively, they were hypocrites. We know how Jesus felt about hypocrites. The notion of a hypocrite comes from Greek drama. A Greek actor would wear a mask to play a part. Essentially, in putting on the mask, they were pretending to be someone they weren't. And this is the notion that the, Holy, sorry, that the New Testament picks up on when it uses the word hypocrite. And is exemplified here by Ananias and Sapphira. They were pretending to be holy and righteous and generous when really they were selfish and self-seeking. And that's what a hypocrite is. Somebody who pretends to be something that they're not for the sake of a show. 
our actions and our motives need to tie up in the body of Christ. We need to be real. I don't mean in the sense of telling everybody all our woes. Rather, I mean living in a way wherein our actions and our words line up with our profession of faith. In other words, where we're living with, where we're living with secret sin, whether that be pornography, theft, gossip, or anything else we can care to mention. Whilst pretending to be an exemplary Christian, we just present ourselves as a hypocrite before God. And if we do, we deceive ourselves. We deceive the community. And I should also say that we, have, that we all have things in our lives that we're working on. None of us are perfect. But willfully carrying on with a sin when we know that it's wrong will undermine the reality of our faith and will jeopardize the blessing of God in our lives. It's all right, I won't be much longer. You can smile again in a few minutes. So what was the outcome? Peter exposed the sin of Ananias. And Ananias dropped down dead. Maybe the shame of being exposed caused him to have a heart attack. Maybe God just took him out. Without doing an autopsy, we'll never know. What we do know that his wife had the same reaction to her sin being exposed. And the outcome of the community was great fear seized the community. Not surprisingly, it literally put the fear of God into them. Last week during the worship, I spoke about the awe of God. And this is what we see here. We cannot take God for granted. We cannot be disrespectful towards him. We cannot treat him in an over-familiar way. And we certainly cannot set out to deceive him. God is El Shaddai, the Almighty. He sits upon the throne of the universe in regal splendor. He is working out his purposes on this earth according to his good pleasure. And the writer of the Hebrews tells us it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is not just a loving father. And he doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. He is a loving father. But he's also a God who is so angry at sin that he poured out the full might of his wrath upon his own son so that we didn't have to bear it. We can't take this stuff for granted. Our privilege is that as a result we receive access into his presence and a hope beyond the grave. But we should never take these things lightly or without due reverence and thankfulness. The God we worship is a loving father, but he's also a God of justice as well as a God of mercy. So what have we learned this morning? Firstly, that we're called to be generous within the community of God's people, to support the needs of others. Secondly, where there is unity and harmony, the power of God is seen and the blessing of God is poured out. Thirdly, taking the example of Barnabas, we can all be an encouragement to one another in the body of Christ. Lastly, heed also the example of Ananias and Sapphira and their hypocrisy. We need to treat both the body of Christ and the Lord himself with respect. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you will teach us through your truth, through the truth of your word. You'll help us, Lord God, to have a right respect to your holiness and to your almighty power, but also to your graciousness in reaching out your hand and drawing us to yourself. And I pray, Lord God, that as we seek your face, as we seek to live in harmony and unity with one another, we might see your power poured out amongst us, not for our own sakes, but for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of the world. Amen.